Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, this morning, we're going to uh, take you to a interview I did with a... Uh, in- we're going to go to Timor-Leste. We're actually uh, talking to Luigi Acquisto, who... Uh, with uh, Lourdes Perez has just recently won an award for a film that they've done, a documentary called Abdul and Jose, uh, talking about something I know nothing about, I knew nothing about, and I don't know if you do either, which it was all about uh, uh, during the Indonesian occupation of Timor-Leste, a whole lot of children were siphoned off. Uh, and uh, taken off to Indonesia to become good little Indonesian citizens. Uh, didn't didn't know anything about this, and that's the subject of Abdul and Jose. Uh, so we're going to have a yarn with uh, Luigi Acquisto about that first up, and following that, we're going to find out about the effects of raising the uh, pension age for women from... Uh, originally from 60 to 65, and uh, now it's moved up to about 68. But anyway, we're going to talk to Todd Morris about that. He's a PhD student from Melbourne who's done a very interesting uh, investigation in the entire affair. So he's going to give us uh, the lowdown on that. And Kevin is back. Kevin, uh, he went on his little holiday, but he's back and he's going to give us a lowdown on the week. This is the week that was after 8, about 8.20. And uh, apologies to people who were were expecting to have the report of uh, the group of people who went down to... uh, Martin Foley's office on Friday uh, about homelessness. Martin Foley, of course, is the Victorian minister responsible for the outlandish plan to uh, hand over public uh, assets to developers, calling it uh, public housing renewal. We'll we'll report on that next week. Uh, What we're going to do is actually uh, go to uh, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union Uh, event that happened on Friday as well and we're going to hear some uh, quite dramatic speeches. One was from uh, the uh, Deputy uh, President of the uh, CPSU, uh, Lisa Newman, who did a great speech, I'll have to say. uh, She represents, her union represents the workers at Centrelink that are uh, not only the uh, people who are recipients of Social Security but the employees 
uh, of the government are also under attack. We follow that. We end up the show with some uh, golden words from Father Bob, who also came down to the AUWU event at Trades Hall on Friday. Uh, But first off, let's hear an important message. Celebrate International Women's Day with 3CR as we bring you 24 hours of awesome women and gender-diverse broadcasting. Check out our grid online at 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2018. Tune in from midnight to midnight on Thursday the 8th of March for women and gender-diverse news, views, arts, science, music, current affairs, talkback, community languages and much more. In front of the mic, on the panel and behind the scenes on International Women's Day at 3CR, Women Run Things. Camp Anarchy is on again from March the 10th to the 12th, bringing anarchists, their families and those interested in anarchist ideas together in a relaxing bush setting to share ideas, skills, food, music and laughter. Workshops include creative action, mischief and mayhem, cooperative housing, radical parenting, street medics, building real-life communities, global warming's local effects, transformative justice, military in Australia and much more. For more info, check out www.campanarchy.org or search for Camp Anarchy 2018 on Facebook. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR. And as I threatened, uh, we're going to go and talk to Luigi Acquisto, who, uh, with Lourdes Perez and uh, their team, uh, have uh, won an award recently around a documentary that they made called Abdul and Jose. But we'll let Luigi explain himself and uh, the issue that the film covered. As I was saying to you, Luigi, uh, I have to congratulate you on your win. You've, you and Lourdes Perez, you've both been the directors of uh, Abdul and Jose, and you recently won an award. That's right. Tell, tell us about the award. Well, it was the special jury prize at FIFO, which is a film festival in Tahiti, the International Pacific Documentary Film Festival. And, um, yeah, so that was a, a great honour and... Uh, especially for uh, a film from Timor-Leste. Uh, and it's a co-production, really, um, or collaboration between uh, myself and filmmakers from Timor um, uh, and the uh, production company there, Dilly Filmworks. Ah, right. So, And it's been building a building, hasn't it, that collaboration, that type of collaboration? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it's not a, a big industry there or an industry at all it's a there's a start of a film culture in Timor and I've been involved uh, with that community of young filmmakers probably for about seven eight years now but my history in Timor as a filmmaker 
it goes back to 1999 when I first went there. We made a documentary series for the ABC uh, called East Timor, Birth of a Nation. Then a sequel to that, a Seven Up style sequel called Rose's Journey. Worked on the feature film Balabo as the production coordinators. Um, and s- during that time met many young Timorese interested in film, both in front of the camera and behind. And so after Balabo, we started to work together and produce the country's first feature film, now, Beatrice's War. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, oh, yeah, Beatrice, Beatrice's War. What was that like making? Uh, exciting. Uh, uh, quite, quite a big undertaking. It was ambitious, but um, probably no more difficult than it would have been to make a feature film in Australia. I mean, the challenge was budget. Um, there were no, you know, the project fell between the cracks. It was uh, a Timorese production, and yet there was no funding in place in Timor when we started making the film uh, to fund film. Who who did fund it? Well, it was funded through uh, a number of different sources. Some film awards uh, for script, um, uh, crowdsourcing, uh, private investors, and then once there was a rough cut, uh, the Timorese government came on board, Shanana Guzmao, president, uh, prime minister rather at the time, saw the film, uh, Jose ramos Horta, the president, supported the film. So it took them, to, you know, they needed to see the film, I guess, before they uh, had confidence that it was going to happen. I mean, in a country where... Uh, there was no history of cinema. Um, and so the Timorese government, both the Ministry of Culture, the Office of the President and Prime Minister, all supported the film. Well, if we go to uh, this film, um, Abdul uh, Jose, um, Jose. 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 Uh, I, I, the subject matter of this film, I actually knew nothing about the Indonesian occupation taking children from their people and resettling them and re-educating them in Indonesia. Well, yeah, Abdul and Jose, uh, also known as The Stolen Child, is a film about one of many thousands of East Timorese who were taken uh, as part of a stolen generation from East Timor during the war with Indonesia. And it's estimated that over 4,000 were taken over that period. Um, and the the man we follow, who's called Abdul in Indonesia, but his uh, Timorese name is Jose, was taken when he was nine years old. And his story is typical of many who uh, disappeared in those early years of the occupation. And, and the family thought he was dead, right? Well, the family thought he was dead. Uh, what happened was that uh, in that period of history, um, the Indonesians were really um, consolidating their attack on the Timorese resistance and the Timorese population, which at that time lived in the mountains with the resistance fighters. And so as the bombings continued and... Uh, the Indonesians were able to be more successful because of stealth aircraft that they had acquired, provided by Great Britain and America. Um, many of the the, uh, the population, many ordinary uh, people, non-combatants, were forced to flee down the mountain uh, where they were hiding. You know, a number of mountains, but uh, the one that's most known is Mount Matabian. And during that time... Um, 
families became separated. So Jose was separated from his family uh, and then uh, joined up with uh, a a unit of Indonesian soldiers uh, who used the young boys as porters as to carry weapons and so on. And then after that, many of the soldiers would take these boys back to Indonesia. And it's very different to Australian, um, Australia's Dolan generation. There, there wasn't a policy. Of anything, I was going to say it wasn't a policy. No, if anything, it was against official military policy and government policy. But, and the reasons why the boys or, and girls in many cases were taken are varied. Some of the soldiers wanted a child, so it was a, a form of um, adoption. forced adoption, if you like without the consent of the parents or having coerced the parents at times. Um, Others wanted a servant. Others did it because they thought the boys may be better off. I mean, some of... We're doing them a favour. Yeah, some of these children were, you know, would have died if they hadn't have been taken to Indonesia. Uh, But then many were abandoned once they got there. The, the adults just, uh, the soldiers... They lost interest. Yeah, lost interest, didn't look like after Like a kitten them. or a dog. Yeah, or else it was just financially... Um, uh, onerous. Too, yeah, too much of a, of a commitment. And many of the soldiers were just ordinary soldiers, so they didn't necessarily have a lot of money. But also some very high-ranking soldiers, uh, including possibly the future president of Indonesia, um, Prabowo Subianto, took... Uh, a number of children back home, educated them, um, and they are now they're, in many ways, part of his family. Later it became more of a Soharto actually did have a, I guess, a policy of sorts, which was to take young Timorese children from either Catholic schools or Muslim colleges that had been set up in Timor and take them to Indonesia, mm. make them... Indonesian. Indonesian, and then they would return, and in the long term it was seen as... As part of, you know, there is a, uh, a book called Making Them Indonesian and, and that was, was also an intention uh, of the Indonesian government at that time. It was quite sophisticated colonisation, basically. Yes, I don't know how it didn't really, it was never really followed through in the sense that um, not many of these children ever returned. Most of them haven't returned. Most of them are still in Indonesia. I was just wondering how you got the story. That's what I'm getting at. Uh, why did it? Why well, it did was my story, sorry. not my story, but it was my no, idea. Your idea, but, you know. Well, I've been in Timor since '99. I've lived there for many years, so these sort of stories are, are very familiar. Yeah, and so it was something that you know I discussed with Lourdes. I mean, obviously, my knowledge of the story came from talking to Lourdes, talking to Betty, the co-producer, who herself was taken as a child. Oh, really? But recovered before she could disappear to Indonesia. Right. But the idea of it being a documentary was um, an idea that I put together. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, we, uh, Lourdes and Betty led the um, the campaign to, to get some funding for it because the money for it did come out of uh, Timor. It did come out of the what's called CPLP, the Community of Portuguese Language Countries. Uh, who had a film fund. and um, So it's in Portuguese? It's in Tetum, with some Portuguese, some Bahasa Indonesian. Right. And um, it was quite a Challenge. remarkable story. We we found Jose because um, there's an NGO in 
uh, Timor and Indonesia that is working with government bodies to locate and then repatriate um, Timorese who were taken. So there's been a, a, a handful over the years of Timorese who have returned, returned to Indonesia again because that's where their life is, their families are, their children are and so on. I don't think many have stayed in Timor, yeah. even though you know they may want to return one day to Timor. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're talking to Luigi Arquisto, who uh, is uh, part of a team who made an award-winning uh, documentary called Abdul and Shose, and it's about uh, it focuses on children that were taken away, or one of the stories of uh, a child taken away from Timor Leste uh, during the Indonesian occupation. Let's continue with our chat. And you found uh, Jose through this NGO, but uh, how did you get persuade him to be part of this? Well, he didn't need very much persuasion. Lourdes and uh, Betty spoke to him and uh, suggested that we make a, a film about his life, and uh, he agreed. So, um, yeah, we visited him in Indonesia, in Kalimantan, where he lives, and his family are. He's married, has three young daughters, and then um, travelled with him and the family uh, back to Timor where he visited the, the family village for the first time. I mean, his family knew by this stage that he was alive. You know, they'd been in contact. He'd already visited once before, on his own though, but only to Dili. So this was his first visit back to the village where he so, grew So up. how far away from Dili would that village have been? It was about an eight-hour drive. Yeah, right, OK. Quite a hike and, you know, we did it in very bad weather, lost two cars on the way and, and so on. So it was quite a Very exciting filmmaking. Drive, yeah, our car survived, but the two other uh, vehicles that were travelling with us didn't. And he needed to go back to his community, not only to see family, because, because there's a... a uh, an animist belief in Timor that if someone's dead, you need to, in a sense, go through a ceremony which declares that they're dead. And they have a sacred house, and in that sacred house is a plate that belongs to each member of the family. And so that plate needs to be turned upside down. And that signifies that someone is no longer in the world of the living. It releases the spirit, but it also allows people to move people on. To move on. And that was quite common during the war, during the resistance, the occupation. Um, and often, as was the case with many of the resistance fighters, they weren't dead. Yes. So when they return, they need to go through an a undoing. ceremony, an undoing where the plate is turned back. And that has to be done in his sacred house, in his village. And until that's done, he can't enter the family home um, and many other conditions. Yeah, very freaky. Uh, yeah, so he needed to return, and we, that's what we tracked. We tracked the transformation in him as a person uh, before and after that ceremony, and uh, he was very closed, uh, very quiet before that, very scared because it's a belief that you're actually dead. You're one of the living dead. You're a spirit. Um, and then after the ceremony, you know, he's, he opened up. It was much more... Uh, so all the bonds of communication can then be opened? Yeah, it can be opened. He was no longer fearful. Um, he, his parents were still... No, both his parents had died. His, his mother died uh, not knowing yeah. that he was still alive. And so that was quite a, 
a moving moment in the film when he actually goes to visit the grave of his parents. Um, but, you know, several brothers and, and a sister were still alive. So, And it was uh, quite a, a powerful journey uh, because he not only returned to the village, but he returned to the place where he was taken, where he disappeared from. Yeah, so he could remember all these things. And it must have been very interesting for his uh, now family. It was. And what was quite remarkable is that um, he's a Muslim. Yes. And uh, converted to Islam. His wife, of course, is Muslim and his children. And there was total acceptance uh, by the Timorese, who are Catholic, and by and uh, his family. as well, though. And both of them are animist, uh, yeah, scratch yeah. the surface. Um, Which is And so it's really quite an important film in that sense, you know, just to show that that sort of reconciliation uh, can happen, that, you know, is more, Christianity it, and Islam yeah. can coexist. Uh, it's more important than uh, these uh, structured religions. Yeah. Yeah. And that um, particularly in a case where, you know, there's very strong cause for, I guess, uh, conflict or antagonism. Angst, really. Well, Timor had been, you know, occupied, invaded Mm. by Indonesia. And yet the Timorese are quite remarkable because they've always differentiated between the Indonesian people and the Indonesian military. During that whole occupation, they never targeted Indonesian civilians, who, uh, of which there were many in Timor under transmigration schemes. Many have remained. Um, So that tolerance, I think, is something... Uh, you know, to be admired. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, uh, one thing I did want to ask is that uh, looking at the films that have been made, uh, that you've been involved in, and even this film itself, it would appear that uh, character is all important. The people are the most important, the thing that drives the stories. Is there something that you want to talk about that? Is that well, would, I, is, am I right in saying yeah, that? Yeah, no, definitely. Well, partly because we've made documentaries for television and so they often need to be character-driven if they're simply issue-based and those sort of programs are done very well by Four Corners, Foreign Correspondent, investigative style. Um, uh, but but you actually programs. do come across, you do tell the story of the issues as much by following these people. Yes, and but you can also reveal something that you can't simply Google or, or research. I mean, yeah. you're hearing the voice of people who have actually been in that position. We've made uh, two films about uh, a sex trafficking victim, a young woman who was trafficked to Australia, and those films were trafficked and trafficked directly. She was uh, sold to a brothel in Sydney when she was 13. Um, and that was her story, and it was much you know, more powerful than if we simply presented the issues and a range of many stories without having... And also it's, it fails, it stops being, oh, I've heard of. It becomes, this is actually true. And if you're moved by the story and you, mm. therefore you're engaged and you have empathy for the issues uh, because of the fact that you've got, you know, a very strong character with a powerful story, but also, you know, with many of the films we've made, including others about Timor, um, you know, they're very engaging, charismatic 
personalities. So I, I find it very interesting because filmmaking is actually really not as naturalistic as people think it. You know, like the product uh, creates the illusion of naturalism, but in actual fact, it's very hard work. So the scripting phase and the uh, how many people were involved in actually shooting it, that sort of thing, the sheer practicalities of it. How did that go? What with which film was with, well, Abdul this one? Abdul, well, well, that was Jose. a very small crew, really. Yeah. It was, at times it was only two of us, sometimes only one, um, uh, the most three. And did people forget you were there? I don't know if they ever forgot, but it didn't um, intrude on what was unfolding, particularly you know, when we arrived back at the village in Timor. I mean, it was such a, a, an emotional, powerful experience for everyone involved, you know, for these two families to be reunited and to meet Jose's family his Indonesian family, that it was as if we were invisible. I mean, if you see the film, you'll see that there's, you know, the cameras in amongst the action, the emotion, um, and there's no awareness of it by any of the subjects. So I think establishing trust with your subjects is critical, and that, you know, is done in a number of ways and different ways for each project. And once that happens, I mean, you have access and, and people tend to accept the camera but it still isn't naturalistic as you said it's an artifice um people tend to think documentaries are objective i don't think they are i mean that they always have a point of view it's very different to uh, factual programming you know there's a lot of reality television which is highly scripted orchestrated um uh, that that's different to what we're talking about but there still is an element of construction artifice in any film you make, whether it be drama or documentary. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, how much um, How much did you go with the flow and how much of the structure that you were imagining actually happened in that? Well, in this one, we went pretty much with the flow yeah. because the, the journey dictated the structure. That's so right. we followed okay. the journey. But there's other documentaries which are perhaps more episodic in the way that someone's life unfolds that... You may tend to try and, you know, uh, nudge situations, uh, you know, for events to happen um, earlier than later and so on. But um, this one here, though, because it was Jose and his family's journey to Timor and then returning back home and reflecting on that, it was, you know, fairly linear and something that we really followed and and let unfold. And did you have questions that you sometimes wanted to know the answers to and therefore you did a little interview with them? Or? Oh, we did interviews. Yeah, yeah. so I you mean, used it as a method. There's no narration in this one, Yeah. no presenter of course, but often there is a narrator. This one has a few cards at the start that establish Jose's background yeah. as someone who was taken from Timor at a young age and that he's now returning. Um, but other than that... Um, yeah, there's a few interviews interspersed to establish a bit of the backstory, but also how the family, including the children, feel about the the journey, the outcome of it, and primarily where they feel most comfortable. You know, where they uh, think they want to live in the future. Where did you do the editing, and how long did it take? Uh, the editing was um, done in Australia and East Timor. Oh, right, cool. Uh, because we. Um, uh, uh, we we have an edit suite here, but also uh, we worked on a on another project, which was a twenty part drama series 
again for East Timor, Portuguese-speaking countries, uh, based on love and justice. And that was happening in Timor, so some of the editing for this one was happening concurrently with that. But also um, some of the post-production, the, the grade and the mix and all of that, uh, also happens in Jakarta. So there's a relationship between Dilly right. Filmworks okay. and filmmakers in Jakarta, facilities there, um, and it's you know, uh, some ways easier and uh, a lot cheaper. Yeah, no, that's it. the facilities here. Yeah, but it's important, those connections and uh, having the facilities available. That it, it just struck me as being interesting. Can we just talk about the film festival again? Uh, because Australians, as a general rule, don't uh, take much notice of their Pacific uh, neighbours, except, I think, when they're going on holidays. Uh, some people obviously are much more alert to what's going on in the Pacific, but we're part of the Pacific, and this is an important kind of uh, f- film festival. Uh, what, who, are, who are the people who contribute to that festival? How, what did, films did you see? What sort of places did they come from? Well, they're from, you know, all around the world, but a lot of, you know, films from Australia, New Zealand, um, other Pacific nations. Um, and generally films that often deal with issues to do with um, colonisation, human rights. And, you know, I think that's something that is... Um, uh, I've, I've noticed in many Asian film festivals, um, Abdul and Jose also showed at the Mumbai International Film Festival, a documentary festival in Dhaka as well, and uh, as Brazil, um, Portugal. Uh, so... There seems to be a community of uh, filmmaking uh, countries and festivals that actually tend to value these sorts of common experiences because they've often had, you know, the country has had or a history of colonisation or occupation. They tend to have this empathy often for these types of films. What future has the Timor uh, filmmaking fraternity got? Where well, are they going? Well, there's, there's more and more um, talented young filmmakers coming through, but very few opportunities. I mean, that's the problem. The, the Timorese government uh, does fund productions at times, but um, uh, very, uh, it, there's not a film fund as such, so these uh, productions are often linked to civic education programs and how film might work in that context. But the European Union has funded projects, the community of Portuguese-speaking nations, other foreign organisations like um, AusAid or USAID. Um, but still, I think it's going to be a challenge um, in the future for uh, Timorese filmmakers to be able to make films without foreign support. And where can people see Abdul and Jose? Uh, it's available through... Dilly Filmworks or Fair Trade Films as a DVD. Um, it has been seen, but uh, in the sense that it was shown before it went to festivals, it's also been shown on television in nine Portuguese-speaking countries uh, You know, with a, an audience of up to 300 million. It's been shown in Timor. It just hasn't been shown on television yeah. in Australia. Um, but it probably soon will be available as a video-on-demand program, but that's all being finalised at the moment. What was the reaction in East Timor? Uh, very good. 
Yeah. yeah, it's always hard to gauge because a lot of it's word of mouth. I mean, yeah. there's no publication. It's either social media or people you speak to. And nobody's going to say something mean to your face. Uh, probably not, no. But um, it's also been shown, as have other films made in Timor, at public open-air screenings around the country. Yeah. And so Beatrice's War, which was the country's first feature film, has toured the country um, and, and well attended, I yeah, presume. Yeah, probably some screenings will have, one screening had 4,000 people at an open-air screening. Um, it's probably been seen by up to 100,000 people over the last couple of years. That's fantastic. Or in the first two years it was shown. Yeah. It had a cinema release there, as it did here. So, um, yeah, there's a real hunger for Timorese stories, and Timorese people want to hear their language and see their own people on the screen, which is you know, was un- unheard of until just a few years ago. Oh, I know that um, uh, 3CR, for example, and uh, people from... Th- th- there is a connection with uh, some of the public radios, uh, community radio stations that they have over there in East Timor. So, obviously, uh, there is a thirst of to hear their own language. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, as you'd expect. Thanks very much. Thank you. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my hand back Listeners, do not forget 3CR, International Women's Day, Thursday the 8th of March. Talk Back With Attitude, 10 till 11, an all-women's affair for the day. So call in on 94190155. We would love to have some attitude from all the women out there and wish them all a happy International Women's Day. Of course, that's next Thursday, March the 8th, International Working Women's Day. And uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, as I said, we're going to go to Todd Morris. So I had a chat with a guy called Todd Morris, who is a PhD student at Melbourne University. And uh, he he was investigating a particular question, unequal burden of retirement reform evidence from Australia. What it is, is a study of uh, the effects on uh, women of the uh, increase in the uh, retirement age. But uh, I will leave Todd to explain himself because he does it so beautifully. You're a a doctorate student at Melbourne Uni, aren't you? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Annie. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, yeah, you're right. I'm doing my PhD at the University of Melbourne. Um, I'm about to finish in the next year, so it's exciting. Now, I've got you in the studio because I want to speak to you about your particular uh, subject, the question. So tell the audience what what your question was. Okay, so I'm looking 
are to understand the distributional effects of increasing the pension age on Australian women. So mm. in other words, um, I'm looking at understanding how the effects varied for different types of women, particularly in terms of their wealth and marital status. So what I'm really interested in understanding is how vulnerable groups of women were affected, especially those who were fairly poor and those who were single. Now, you uh, were um, taking the data from uh, when they decided to change it from 60 to 65. Now that they've moved on to 65 to 70, we can imagine whatever your findings are will probably be exacerbated. Yeah, so just uh, in terms of... So I'm looking at the 60 to 65 for women. Yeah. So the pension age is actually currently increasing from 65 to 67. Yeah. So the coalition government um, in, in the infamous Tony Abbott budget 2014, actually had planned to increase it even further from 67 to 70, but that actually didn't get through Parliament. Right. So um, the pension age is still increasing to 67. Um, it might increase further in the future, but it's certainly a very relevant um, issue at the moment. Okay. All right. So uh, what did you find? Oh, well, tell, tell us where you got your, what, what start data you were actually looking at. Where did you get your figures yep. from? So I'm, I'm looking at the HILDA survey, which is a uh, a very high-quality, uh, nationally representative uh, survey. And so HILDA re-interviews the same group of households every year since 2001. Um, and HILDA has really detailed information on, on women and, and every other person in the household as well. So it can really get a clear picture of what's happening um, to women around the pension age. So what sort of questions do they ask? Uh, in, in Hilda? Yeah. So, well, Hilda has really comprehensive information on income, for example, uh, labour supply. And I also, uh, for this for this paper, I also use really um, important information on financial security. So right. in terms of women's financial hardship, um, I'm able to get at that question, how, right. the, how the pension age increasing affects levels of financial hardship. Now, is that qualitative or is it quantitative? Uh, so I, I use uh, both subjective measures and objective measures of sort of financial hardship. So for my um, subjective measures, it's looking at um, women rating their overall sort of um, financial situation, but also I'm looking at whether women were unable to pay their mortgage or rent on time in the last 12 months. So that's relatively more objective. And then I look at uh, sort of measures of poverty and so when you think about poverty, don't think about so much women who are sort of so poor that they can't eat, for example, but more think about women who, whose households really don't have um, what we'd consider in a sort of uh, fairly wealthy society as an adequate standard of living. Oh, does it include things like being able to pay your electricity and gas? And uh, so so I don't look at that so much. So what I use is, is the level of income women have and, and their household and also the level of in-kind transfers. So obviously these are really important um, for, for elderly people as they receive a lot of targeted assistance on, on health care, for example, um, through subsidies on, on doctor visits and the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. Goodness, it must have been a real challenge looking at this particular... How, how did you deal with this, all this information? Yeah, so it was um, it did require a bit of effort. So I um, well, that's why you're doing your doctor. <laughs> so <laughs> I used not only Hilda, but f- to sort of merge in these in-kind transfers, I used um, an a- Australian Bureau of Statistics data set, which essentially um, it looks at uh, it, it interviews uh, households and asks them how much they spend on certain items, 
And then based on their sort of receipt of welfare and so on, it works out how much targeted assistance they receive from the government in terms of in-kind benefits. And so I match that data in to Hilda um, to sort of look at this overall perspective of women's financial situation. Oh, fantastic. All right. So tell me what you found. Yeah. So so I'll, uh, I guess, look at a few things sort of sequentially. So um, in terms of labour supply responses, um, what I find is really all of the labour supply response came from women who were single and relatively poor. So women whose wealth was in the bottom sort of 25% of the population um, for, so what, for what their kind age. Of fi- what sort of figure are we talking about? So I find around uh, so 8% of, of these sort of low-wealth single women, uh, so of these low-wealth women um, increase their labour force participation, but I don't find any sort of significant response from other groups of women, so more affluent and married groups of women. I don't find any response at all. So it's disproportionately affecting one slice of the uh, female population in Australia? Correct. Yeah, so all of the labour supply response is really coming from this low-wealth group of women who were financially constrained, so really they didn't have much choice but to remain in the labour force, whereas wealthier women who had this choice... They could have... Yeah, well, they, they had a they, choice. They didn't respond, so... Oh, yes, right. That's right. Okay. All right. They didn't see it as being relevant to them. Uh, well, it, it seems like they, they were... It wasn't um, partic- important enough, um, this income loss that they, re- that they had, um, to... Uh, to remain in the labour force, at least, yeah. Yeah, right, okay. And so people who, well, now we're getting a picture of this person who are these people who have to be in the labour force, they're not earning enough to be able to, and they don't have any other supporting structures. Yeah, so um, so what I find is some women were sort of forced to work longer, um, whereas, and some low-wealth single women would have liked to work longer, but they were relatively uneducated, and these were the women who actually didn't respond from a labour supply perspective, but they suffered from a financial hardship perspective. So you can think about these lucky women who were forced to work longer or are these really unlucky women who were um, not able to work longer and suffered the most. Um, yeah, right, so. okay. And so uh, so we're, get, we're getting to the findings here. You, you, what you've found is that um, this group, there's a group of people who are really disproportionately affected by the idea of raising the um, pension age. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah, this low-wealth single, single group were disproportionately affected. Okay. Well, that's really fascinating. Uh, is there, do, do you expect that some of the findings that... Uh, Oh, well, what propelled you to do this question? What made you think that this was a relevant thing to look at? Look at? Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. So what I'm really interested in doing is policy-relevant research. So um, I think this, obviously this is one of the most policy-relevant issues around at the moment. We've got an ageing population. The pension age is increasing. But there's also a lot of discussion around women's low level of um, retirement savings, low level of superannuation. And there's also a lot of discussion about sort of how, how low the pension actually is. So what I want to know is how, how does an pe- increase in the pension age um, really affect women from a financial perspective? And mm. so um, I think it's important to look at different groups of women because obviously um, you wouldn't expect sort of wealthy women who have a high-earning partner, for example, to be affected in the same way as a, as a single woman with, a, with low superannuation. 
Yeah. And uh, the other thing that strikes me is that uh, you've done this uh, research after these politicians decided to implement it willy-nilly. Was there no research done before this? Uh, so before 1994. Yeah. Did they do any research? Uh, so I, I'm not actually sure. So I know Treasury, uh, whenever there's a reform like this... Reform? They, Inverted uh, commas. <laughs> or whenever there's a policy change. Change. Um, <laughs> whenever there's policy change like this, uh, they analyse the effects using a, using a model to understand the effects on different groups of the population in terms of their income and, and wealth and stuff like that. So I presume it would have gone through the same sort of process. So, so what's really being said here is that they've probably done an analysis and that group of women were considered to be expendable. Uh, well, uh, I don't know if I'd put it like that. I mean, it's always diff- it's always harder to predict what's going to happen um, than to evaluate what happens after the fact. Um, but I think, obviously, these findings can really speak to what's likely to happen in the future um, as the pension age continues to increase. Thanks for talking to me. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we were just listening to uh, Todd Morris from uh, Melbourne University, doctorate student, uh, and his analysis of the... uh, increase in uh, the uh, pension age for uh, women. Uh, We're going to now, before we go to uh, Kevin, and I know you're all chuffing at the bit to hear what Kevin has to say about the uh, past week with, uh, I'm sure he'll highlight Michaela Cash and her uh, outrageous behaviour this week. (laughs) Who could uh, miss that? Uh, But... um, before we do, we're going to hear from Grace Jones. Now, Grace Jones, there's a new documentary film coming coming out to Grace Jones, Bud Light and Bambi. Bambi and uh, it is thoroughly interesting. She's a thoroughly interesting performer. And, uh, the, and the reason why I'm bringing it up is because it, she's just so fantastic she, uh, that it's uh, worth uh, telling you that it's coming up. There's only going to be two screenings that I can find at... Uh, the Lido in Hawthorne. It's on Thursday the 8th of March and Friday the 9th of March. I've seen the film. It's it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, and uh, it's been made by Sophie Fiennes. She's the sister of the uh, actor Fiennes. Uh, but uh, there's other things about her that are really fascinating. She used to be the... She was the art director on... Um, on some pretty important films in uh, the 1980s, but uh, has since taken up the camera and uh, been a director of uh, of um, some fascinating portraits of uh, thoroughly interesting people. And uh, Grace Jones falls into that category. So I couldn't help but uh, play you and remind you of the, the great woman herself. Rhythm is both the song's manacle and its demonic charge. It is the original breath. It is the whisper of unremitting demand. What do you still want of this as a singer? Ladies and gentlemen, 
The jobs of millions of True Blue Aussies depend on their caring employer making profits and profits and profits. Jennifer explained the obvious. We can't overcome this long-term problem of slow-wage growth if caring employers' profits don't continue to soar. And obviously the record profits they've been announcing aren't quite enough yet to allow caring employers to pay workers just a little more. Because there's no doubt they would if they could. And how's this for demolishing the silly socialist lie that profits and ripping off are all business cares about? We are basically forgetting, Jennifer Sage, direct quote, the future of the people we are talking about is not the future of the people sitting around those board tables. It's the future of the person working in the hardware store, working at the supermarket, working in the airline, serving you in a restaurant and running their corner store. What a beautiful sentiment. If only the long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker in iron lots had just a little of the same concern for all, empathy with all. Jennifer's desperate, timely plea was in support of the tax cuts for the filthy rich that are so essential, responding to some naive suggestions that with one in five top 100 companies paying no tax whatever, that is, not one cent, but presumably happily accepting a bit of corporate welfare from other people's taxes, then there is no need for a tax cut. That is tremendously misleading misrepresentation of tax arrangements, Jennifer talked reason. Doesn't tremendously misleading misrepresentation reveal how tremendously misleading misrepresenting it is? Uh, what do you mean by tax arrangements, Jennifer? It's the way companies arrange their taxes um, so that they don't pay any. Exactly. Jennifer and a whole bunch of the top 100 caring employers accompanied big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull to the US of the UN of the US of the world, presumably tax deductible, to maintain their fight for those true blue Aussie workers they so care about. And after delving into a bit of in-depth economic philosophy with US of big supremo Donald Trample the Paw, to a person they agreed the solution was screaming at us. Slash taxes on the filthy rich, screaming at us day after day after day. Donald expressed his in-depth philosophy as he walked into the room to meet the true blue Aussie barons of filthy riches. Direct quote, there's a lot of money in the room. They had appealed to his finer nature. The feminist solidarity week of the ward. Well... We all know who got this. It's a walk-up start, albeit behind a white screen. And another fine example of why we need more women like Maggie Thatched Hair and Gold of My Ear and, well, our very own Michaelia Costa Workers to bring the sensitivity and empathy women like them can bring. And for so obviously dedicated a feminist as Michaelia, it must have hurt Hurt, hurt to have to cosh the workers, the women workers, in Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition's office. To have to infer every one of them was screwing anything that moved in Parliament House and beyond. I didn't say that. I said it's a rumour. Now, a small diversion here. True story. 
When little Billy was a minister in the socialist government, the caring business class lot spread a rumour he had had an affair with a staffer named Shannon, whom he had made pregnant. Only problem was, the making pregnant bit would have been a miracle. Shannon was a bloke. True story. Anyway, poor Macalia, doing her bit to bring a little bit of morality to Canberra, and they reckon she should apologise when she showed in a past life as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations and Coshing the Workers, she so, so admired little Billy, she sent the, sorry, the coppers raiding his ex-office. Well, correction, sorry, Macadia, she didn't send them. She had no idea, and even less idea, one of her staffers had tipped off the media about what she had no idea about. But she did say how she blamed the evil socialists for forcing the number one smash the union's jackboots commissioner, Nigel Hedge, kiss the bosses, to resign. They forced an honest man who simply hated evil workers and evil unions to lose his obscenely paid position for no better reason than he broke the law. Uh, that is the law he was obscenely paid to uphold, Macalia. Uh, there was a rumour to that effect. Perhaps the most logical comment came from some government minister or other Thursday who said the carry-on about Macadia's burst of feminist solidarity was a Socialist Party plot. Apparently some mischievous socialist ventriloquist put the words in her mouth. And Malcolm said she'd been bullied by the evil socialist. So poor bullied Macadia had no choice but to bully defenceless women workers. Either way, Macalia, your Feminist Solidarity of the Week Award is on its way, and congratulations from all of us. One hard-done-by woman we have to feel for, whose dreadful experience exposes the injustice of the legal system, is that filthy rich woman in Britain facing court on traffic charges, who argued she could not lose her licence on the most reasonable grounds that the driveway to her mansion is so long she could not be expected to walk it. And she could not be sentenced to community service because, and this is the bit I liked, and this is true, because she said she had never done a day's work in her life. A watertight criminal defence. And despite her most reasoned arguments, presumably through some ultra-ultra-expensive silk prepared to descend into a lower court for the appropriate fee, the bloody bench did force her to walk the driveway. The report I read didn't mention if she also had to break her lifelong aversion to work. Don't we lose our faith in the legal system when we hear of such miscarriages? Although justice for some non-filthy rich bludgers following the budget office praising a $5 billion saving and growing by scraping disability pensioners off the ship of state or as the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review opened its story under the headline, Disability Crackdown Pays Off, a sustained five-year crackdown on disability support applicants is generating big dividends for the government. We tracked down one of these budgets in a comfortable little Elizabeth Street gutter. What injustice! You'll reduce to begging and living without a roof over your head? No, no, I can always duck under the gutter when it rains. Well, 
well, duck a bit slowly due to only having the one leg and, and half an arm and not being able to see where I'm going too well. But no, no, it's not unjust. The, the government doctor who now makes the decisions made it quite clear I don't qualify as disabled anymore. To, to be honest, I feel a sense of patriotism, feel my life is now worthwhile. I lie here knowing I am generating big dividends for the government. Finally, we kicked off with the tragic news for satire about poor Barnacle, but let's console ourselves. We still have the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, and Home Affairs, Constable Peter Duffer. It was non-home affairs, of course, which sunk Barnacle. Constable Duffer, who has come up with the most brilliant solution to national security. Make every dear little child created in the image of the dear baby Jesus swear allegiance to him. If you like, you know, love me, you, you know, like, love this great country. And what child couldn't love Pete? If they don't, you know, like, love me, it will reveal their, like, parents and, like, them are terrorists. And we'll, like, you know, send them back to, you know, like, where they came from. Oh, yes. Thank goodness we've still got Pete. Good morning. Make sure you get to the International Women's Day Rally and March in 2018. It's on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. Hear from extraordinary women activists, including unionists, disability rights activists, Aboriginal women and those campaigning against police repression. Join working women across Victoria for IWD on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. We have a world to win. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're coming to the end of the show or the last part of the show. Uh, on Friday, I went down to Trades Hall and the Australian Unemployed Workers Union was having a get-together with uh, supporters and members, uh, a working uh, event uh, designed to uh, get people organised for uh, 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 the campaign against uh, the uh, social security crackdown that the LNP government in uh, Canberra is uh, desperate to wage on uh, the population of Australia. And uh, before they started off do- pulling their sleeves up and getting down to business, there was a couple of speakers. And I've got a couple of them here for you to listen to. Uh, Lisa Newman from the CPSU, that is the union that is uh, uh, covers uh, the workers at Centrelink and other parts of the public service. And uh, this is what she had to say. It was a rollicking speech. She is the deputy uh, le- national leader of the CPSU, Lisa Newman. The CPSU is the union that represents Centrelink, Medicare, child support workers and workers right across the federal government. So, uh, and our, our workers have been attacked by the federal government actually since the, uh, the Abbott government came in, but the way the attack is actually manifesting has changed. Um, over the last three and a half years, uh, wages and conditions have been suppressed. 
uh, in the Federal Public Service, which is highly ironic given that the Treasurer has indicated that wages growth in this country is such a problem. You can tell a lot about an employer by the way they treat their own workers. And uh, this mob are complete hypocrites. Um, they have uh, attacked wages and conditions of public services for the last four years through bargaining, but their second wave of attack is now in progress. And um, that is uh, definitely aimed at the community. We saw it with robo-debt. And what, I just want to be really clear, what robo-debt, well, it's not about robots, by the way. Um, it's actually about taking humans out of a process and making welfare recipients answerable to the government for claiming welfare. Now, I've always believed that that whole strategy was based on doing two things. One is um, driving down government expenditure by decreasing welfare payments, which it has done, and stigmatising welfare recipients, which it has done. Anybody that saw that uh, fiasco run out over the last 12 months, well, actually longer, because I'm pretty sure I spoke to this group a wee while back about that, Anybody that's seen that knows that people are thinking twice now about whether or not they claim an entitlement. Who does that benefit? Well, it benefits the class of people in this country that have never known real wage stress. They have never known the unique and mammoth stress that you feel when you're not sure how you're going to pay your bills or whether or not you can make your next rent payment or what you're going to put on your, your table. So I'm really glad to follow the First Nations Workers Alliance because a lot of the things that you've just heard, well, this class of people think that you should be absolutely grateful for having any government assistance and they treat it as a, um, a badge of shame uh, to actually uh, get a helping hand by the rest of the community. It's certainly not a view that I share. So I said their attack had changed. It is now, it is now about outsourcing public services. It's now about gifting public service jobs to their private sector, multinational, foreign-owned mates. Serco is now in call centres in DHS for the first time ever. Why? Because there's something called an ASL cap, so the government has said you cannot hire any more permanent public servants. Well, guess what employers, or guess what agencies do? They just basically contract out the work. It's a great way to transfer taxpayers' money into shareholders' dividends. That's what it is. It is corporate welfare writ large. And guess who's paying for it? Absolutely we are. Absolutely we are. Uh, the community's also paying for it because these people don't get the training. Uh, they're in insecure employment. If they take sick leave, they're gone. 
and uh, 33 million calls go unanswered in Centrelink. The call queue wait times for the first time are higher in older Australians than they are in Newstart. And I always figured it was always okay for the government and uh, some people uh, to say, we'll, we'll, we'll pick on Newstart, we'll pick on young unemployed people, because we can, we'll give them a smack. Now they're doing it to old Australians. How do you reckon that's going to play out for them? I don't think, I don't think very well. So the attack is now on jobs. Jobs being ripped out of regional areas and outer metropolitan suburbs of every capital city in this country. The very people that need permanent, well-paid jobs, which are like gold dust and need to be treated as such, are the very people that they're targeting. CDEP is a national disgrace, an absolute national disgrace, and it needs to stop. And I was very pleased to be on the, uh, 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 the delegation of the ACTU that uh, put that view to the, the um, Senate inquiry on that issue, representing my union. So we know our members are telling us that when you drop permanent staffing levels, it affects client services. That's, that's what they say. It's not rocket science, is it? You ask a senior public servant that in front of a Senate Estimates Committee as happened in Canberra last night, they say, no, 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 it's all good. No, there's no, there's no e effect at all on customer service and on community services. Uh, I'd ask you who you believe. Because when I go out into our workplaces and talk to our members, they're pretty clear about what that impact is, and it's not good. So we've got this false reality that is circulating uh, in some areas of our, our community that is more and more being called out for what it is. And I think we're actually in a unique place in our history. Um, I don't think it's any accident now that things like hashtag me too um, have resonated and just across every um, spectre of society, every sphere of uh, society that they have, I don't think it's any accident that people are actually now saying, you know, trickle down economics. Yeah, nah. I don't think there's any, um, any doubt at all in anybody's mind that having multinational corporates earn billions of dollars of profit and then transfer that overseas to write up a loss here and not pay tax in our country, when you've got Qantas Airways not paying tax in the last two financial years and being the champion of further corporate tax cuts, well, that's money... You can't spend it twice where it's not being spent is on the people that really need it in our community to ensure that they have lives that are dignified and that give every Australian a chance to reach their potential. So my union and our members are on the front line in terms of the work that they're asked to do and I can tell you that they struggle with it. 
they really struggle with it because they get a first-hand look at the treadmill of despair. When you ask people to get trained for jobs that don't exist, when people's payments are cut, they know exactly how that works because they see it face to face every day. And not only do they see that, they get to feel the brunt of some of the attacks themselves. So look, I stand here in solidarity with you and my motto is uh, box clever and box hard. This government is really on the nose and um, we don't actually have to do much, I reckon, to watch them fall over because they're punching themselves pretty desperately hard in the face now. But I'm up for giving them a good shove. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, that saying, let's put our money where our mouth is, if you don't have money, guess what? Time is equally as valuable. And uh, organisations uh, like this one are really important because we've got some really important political uh, decisions to make. We've got a, a state election in this um, uh, state and we've got an upcoming federal election and who knows uh, when that will be. Uh, but what I do know is that we need to change the rules uh, in our industrial landscape because this stuff is not going to write itself. And um, my personal mantra is that working people in this country need to be given the right to strike at a time that they see fit, for, under circumstances that they see fit, uh, not be tied up in legal uh, uh, bounds, I think we need to deregulate. I'm in favour of deregulation in this instance. I would like to see the right to take industrial action deregulated completely. Um, I would also like that every worker in a site of more than two workers has the right to collectively bargain. Collective bargaining is collapsing in our country and with it wage growth. Uh, Unions, guess what, uh, we help spread, spread that money around. Uh, if there are no unions in this country, uh, you've got what's happening in the United States. And if a court case in the United States goes badly for the unions in about a week's time, uh, the last bastion of unionised workers, which are in the uh, public sector in the States, will go. So... Uh, I know what I'm getting out of bed for. It's those things. Oh, and my last wish, if I was queen of the world, we would call bullshit on casualisation. How can you be a casual when you've been employed in the same job for over 10 years doing regular hours? That is utter, utter bullshit. So let's call it for what it is. So I reckon if we do some of that, get a bit of tax justice and a bit of wage justice and give unemployed people real hope that they're not going to be on a merry-go-round. I reckon that, that's something I'd sign up for. What about you? Well, let's do it, hey? All right, who's next? <laughs>
The fabulous Lisa Newman from the CPSU at the Australian Unemployed Workers Union uh, event yesterday at uh, working uh, working event. It was about uh, people getting together and coming up with a campaign uh, to push back on the LNP uh, government's uh, plan to crush uh, people on social security benefits. Uh, and we're going to end up the program with uh, Father Bob, who was at the same event, because uh, it's always worth having a listen to Father Bob. Father Bob? Oh, well, we, can we have Father Bob first, please? Come on. Father Bob's an ambassador for our Frankston branch, and, and very, very welcome for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Let's give him a clap. But they're unemployed, they must, it means they're hungry. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? I know, have a look at me. Bloody hungry I am. For justice and peace, how's that? That was a lead in, wasn't it? Yeah, that was all right. So I was born in 1934, is it? We're 1834. No, 1934, which means we were poor, wasn't it? Because they came from Glasgow, the four girls, four sisters. My mother was one of them. What the hell they thought they were coming to, I don't know. Well, they reckon they were broke in Glasgow. By the time they got here, Station Pier, um, well, they went broke. If they hadn't been broke before, they were going to be bloody well broke then because of the Depression, wasn't it? Thirty-four. And then on she went, and the only thing that saved them was the war, wasn't it? Well, they got in the uniform, and then they managed to come back. If they came back, they came back, and they had uh, access to, uh, what, education and training. What do you call that thing away in the bush? Uh, they were given bits of land, weren't they? Yeah, all of that. And medical, medical, I remember. Because they came back with, what you get in New Guinea? You got... Um, malaria. Malaria, thank you. And they come back with uh, ulcers and God knows what else. So, um, to them, of course, the war was a bloody good thing. Because if they hadn't had the war, they wouldn't have been up upwardly socially mobile. See what I mean? And then that's 40, that's 50, and here we are today, it's 2,000 or whatever it is. And we're broke, isn't it? That's why we called this meeting, isn't it? Yeah, because we're poor. But there's another mob, apparently, the 1% that's got all the dough. Allegedly, you don't have to be... Where's Mr Toscano? Is he there? Where is he? Yeah, well, I don't have to be a commo to say that, do I? Or an anarchist. <laughs> Although anarchy is the is, is thank you, and anarchy, of course, as you've been saying for a hundred years, is in fact the, the great science, isn't it? Because it means everybody thinks it means that it's chaos, but it doesn't mean chaos. It means nobody rules. Everybody rules, isn't it? Am I right? Thank you. So I become now an honorary, can I be an honorary anarchist? 
Yeah, the Archbishop will be pleased with that. So, I mean, I'm only here because um, I was getting sadder and sadder down there because tonight we're going to... We do it three, four times a week, but uh, tonight I think we feed about 120 in a park in uh, Port Melbourne. And strangely enough, we used to have access to a little park down there that was called after a senator, what's her name? Olive Sakharov. Little park down there opposite Coles. But then efficiency rules, you know that, not effectiveness. So efficiency rules and came in and said, oh God, we better landscape this park. So now nobody can use it. <laughs> but on the CEO of the city of Port Phillip, it comes up, tick. Okay, it looks nice. Nobody can use it. <laughs> so we're all around the corner now in the bloody uh, real park, you know. Uh, what do you call it? Um, yeah, we're out there and we've got a couple of vans and we'll... We do the right thing because we don't want to be, be, uh, be thought of as somebody who comes down and uh, feeds the poor because, as you know better than I do, I mean, the poor is the people. See? It's a category that's been put on them by the others. Those are the people. So uh, we go down and uh, we have tables and chairs and stuff, so it's more of a, a community, what do we call it, a meet, greet and eat. And then, um, what's his name from Frankston, Comrade Paul, is it? Yeah. Yeah, and you uh, seduced me. Well, not you didn't seduce me. So that, in fact, I'm looking for something. I was going to, I wanted the Trades All Council to let us have a, a union for people that we are our, not clients, our friends. And I was going to call it the Mutual Aid Union. The MUA. <laughs> no, the MAU. And then I thought he, he ignored me. What's his name? The secretary of the trades or a bloody lunatic or something. And then across came the comrades. And then I thought to myself, well, this is as good as it's going to get. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union. And then, so I told all my lot, whenever I get a chance, I, he'll, he'll be yelling at me soon because I've given him the bloody cards that says we have a national, what is it? Hotline. See? So you'll be yelling because the phone will be ringing 24-7 once our lot get onto it because there might be 100 tonight, but there's 120 on um, Sunday night at uh, uh, another different 120 at the peanut farm in St Kilda. Um, not local people from the housing ministry so much as just, what's the word, what's the word? Respectable. Well, you know, I mean, I'm calling them the, uh, the uh, urban refugees. Um, socially, whatever it's called, excluded. Um, and St Kilda's always been the home of socially excluded people, including the rich. Well, they, well, it is because they feel that lonely they have to buy houses in St Kilda to you know, give them a rest from making money in town, see? So they go down to a little rest in St Kilda. And then if they got richer and richer, you see, they went right down the Esplanade, didn't they, to Portsea and Sorrento, all those magnificent houses, you see, with, um, with one uh, person in them. 
Well, there is, you see, and oftentimes I think probably it's not even a real person. It's probably, what do you call those things now? AI, <laughs> artificial intelligence, or lonely, interconnected loners. So we feed them, but on, uh, on Wednesday night in the, uh, in the um, housing ministry joint in Dorcas Street, there's another hundred, you see? And Elmwood Park on, so you should be making notes because you might run out of tucker. You can go to any of these joints, you see? And so I'm a member of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Uh, come for a feed, free feed. Uh, Elmwood Park, that is. Um, are there any, um, oh, did, can I mention the Jews? Because they've been good for us. Two or three synagogues team up with us and uh, help with the, with the feeds, you see? Is that all right? Is that all right? Well, they're not, we're not, we're not with the other thing. The other thing you're not allowed to be. Zionists. Mr. Toscano, is that all right? If you're a Zionist, I think you're not, we're not kosher. Oh, sorry. We're not because we're fighting against the Palestinians. See? And we're anti-Semitic. We're charged. Bronnie Bishop charges us with being, or you lot, of being anti-Semitic. But if you say anything about uh, Israel in Palestine, you see. But they've been very good to us and they provide the tucker and they provide all kinds of... Uh, of the waiting on tables and everything, without any reference to uh, you know who. You see what I mean? So I mean that's why I'm here. I didn't want my money here because I needed to be uh, given some what do you call it to feel better. It's a bit selfish, a bit self-indulgent because I notice every time I come to a thing of the A U W A O U that in fact it's a bit like crowd bathing. You see, the Japanese loved that business of going into the forest and coming out feeling fresh. And I thought, well, what the... I've got a bloody forest. But you've got people. If you go in and come out, you feel, I do, feel refreshed by the experience of being with the comrades. You see what I mean? So all I'm here for tonight is to encourage you lot to, uh, to stay at the barricades. Because it's getting harder and harder and harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And it's getting lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. But in any in the next five minutes you'll see there's always been more of us than them. Always has been. You see. But the thing is, you see, it was the lack of what do you call it? Organisation. Which frightens them. Because they know that once the others organise and get together, you see. They think we're going to come after them. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Mr. Toscano. I don't think we are, are we? I don't think we're... Part of the uh, charter is not actually to go after the rich and kill them, is it? And then eat them. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, my, uh, my aim is being... The, uh, well, I don't know what the hell I am. I'm being, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a tribal Catholic, I'm not an institutional Catholic, you see, I've got to say that because George is in court on Monday, <laughs> and I've got to, I'm not going to give up tribal Catholicism just because he's in, yeah. in court, but I don't mind giving up institutional Catholicism because that's, 
the one that's caused all the trouble. Um, so, I mean, I'm here because I can, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, rever 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 reverberate, is it? In sympathy with what you're on about, and I'm grateful to you, thank you very much, for allowing me to intrude into your proceedings, because uh, I can't add that much, except I've been around for 83 and a half years, and I know it's all happened before, and I know that in fact the only way to make sure it doesn't happen as quickly again is the, that we're united in trying to make sure that we leave nobody behind. So if one of us is down and out, well then the rest of us uh, uh, pick, pick the person up. Uh, leave nobody behind is the spirit of Anzac, isn't it? Simpson and his donkey, wasn't it? Well, we're the donkey. See what I mean? We don't want to be the bloody donkey so long as we're doing something worthwhile and carrying one of the cobbers back into safety, isn't it? Thank you. Good night and good luck. Good night. Good luck. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.